0: Well, we have a special treat for the uranium fanatics out there. This is your podcast. This is your blockbuster uranium episode. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and today I am very pleased to welcome Rowan Ratty to the show, and he is a research analyst with Global X ETFs, and they do several ETFs, but they also do a very well-known uranium ETF, and... Uh, they had reached out to me and offered someone to interview. Uh, and, you know, I love these research analysts like Rowan Ratty. Like, let me just, I just couldn't wait to sink my teeth into this interview. It was so interesting. I had so many questions, all these unknowns, following the uranium market for so long. You know, and it's been like a decade since Fukushima. Like, that was the last time uranium really was doing stellar and now now it's it started on, as we noted last show. It started on December first about this uranium bull market. So we're almost at April first. So what is that? We're going on four and a half months, let's say. We're going on four and a half months of this uranium bull market. So that is coming up. Uh, we also have uh, we have an event coming up tomorrow, and this is with hardline, Hardline Global. And if you want to check it out, go to our Twitter page. And on the top, you'll find a pinned tweet that there is a product release webinar with Hardline Global. Learn about the latest and cutting-edge technology, improve safety, cost-saving, efficiency, register here. So super cool. If you are running or operating a mine, I would think you would definitely want to see this, right? So all you mine operators out there, uh go to the northern miners twitter feed and at the very top you're going to find the link to attend the hardline global product release webinar and that's tomorrow wednesday march 24th so that is happening and yeah you know finally before we move on like my take on the markets is it just feels like it's it's waiting for march to be over you know like that's just my impression. It, January and February seem to be pretty good. I mean, in the crypto markets, is frankly like that was like February was the most astonishing month I've ever seen, frankly, in any market. Uh, but I think crypto tends to move with the regular traditional markets. And when you see moves like that, you need to digest those moves. So I'm not shocked that March has turned into a bit of a sideways sort of market, and what do we have here? Oil is at $58.93 for West Texas Intermediate. Gold is at $1,726.10. Silver is at $25.27, copper at $4.08. We'll get into all of these in the metal prices. Our 10-year bond is at 1.649. Still edging up there, but I think what alarmed people the most was the speed. You do notice the chatter has come down a little bit on the 10-year Treasury yields. I saw Fed Chair Powell on uh, YouTube, and I have to say, he has gotten very good at his job. Chairman Jay Powell of the Federal Reserve is really interesting to listen to, and I don't really necessarily feel that way about every Fed chair that I listen to. So, again, everything feels kind of sideways. So let's see what happens. But today is all about uranium. So let's get to that. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And also... Thank you to the comment on SoundCloud. Guys, mention SoundCloud. And also on SoundCloud. So there you have it. You can find us also on SoundCloud. Now let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Denizen Mines is raising $75 million for physical inventory of uranium. And what really stood out is that Denizen Mines is aiming to accumulate about 2.5 million pounds of uranium as a long-term investment. So you know how I know there's a excitement in the uranium market is because our Twitter, we had a tweet on this, on how they want to accumulate this 2.5 million. And how many, like, I mean, people are excited about uranium. 86 likes, 19 retweets, two comments. I mean, for, again, a, a uranium junior miner, that's pretty good so back to the story this is by alicia hyatt editor-in-chief of the canadian mining journal denizen Mines is raising 75 million dollars for the strategic acquisition of physical uranium an initiative the company expects to support the development of its 90 percent owned wheeler river uranium project in saskatchewan's athabasca basin denizen aims to accumulate about two and a half million pounds of uranium as a long-term investment. The company said it expects the purchase will strengthen its balance sheet and enhance its ability to access project financing, potentially by using the holdings as collateral. Now, I guess they're buying it or are they mining? To me, it'd be more impressive if they were mining it, but I guess they're acquiring it. I guess they're not that far down, down the roadmap. The uranium could also give Denison increased flexibility to negotiate long-term supply arrangements with future customers along with production from Wheeler River if the in-situ recovery project is developed. Now this might be the real reason, like I'm sure they're very bullish on uranium. I think the if you don't read this carefully, you might think, oh, Denison Mines wants to buy 2.5 million pounds of uranium because they think it's going to go to the moon. And maybe this is the real reason, which is to make them serious suppliers. Maybe they need to have two and a half million pounds of uranium on hand, otherwise, you know, Arriva or whomever nuclear reactor might not take them that seriously or just might not want to do business if it looks like they might not be able to deliver. Uh, We have a quote from David Cates, Denison president and CEO, and he said, quote, the physical uranium holdings that we expect to acquire will represent a sizable portion of Denison's share of the expected $290 million of initial capital costs for Wheeler River. As a result, we expect this transaction to enhance the long-term financial stability of the company as we advance towards a definitive development decision. Now, another way of looking at this is they do think it's going up, and they just want to... It's almost like... Uh, when gold miners hedge, is that what it's called when they're, you know, when the price is high and then they say, okay, we want to lock this in. It's like maybe David Cates and Dennis and where the price of uranium, they think they, it's going to go up. And so they're saying, we just want to lock in these current prices somehow. Let's just keep reading here. The offering of 68.2 million units priced at $1.10 per unit is expected to close on March 22nd. So they're issuing shares, one share and half a warrant. So this is like, uh, they're raising money to buy uranium. Interesting. An additional over allotment of 10.2 million units could bring in another $11.3 million. Cantor Fitzgerald is the lead underwriter. Spot uranium prices are currently under $27.50 per pound. So the uranium price is not doing very well after reaching a 2020 high of US $34 per pound, Amid supply disruptions last March and April, going into the pandemic, the price had languished at around $25 per pound for nearly a year. You know, that is quite something that uranium is only at $27.50 per pound. So, a lot of this action is really, to me, that says this is more about the stock market running out of places to find value. As Rowan Ratty says in this interview, his final thoughts that I asked him to give, so listen for that, is he talks how there's a transition from growth to value in the stock market. And that's what he saw as going on in the uranium market, It was the shift to value. And the price that we see here, $27.50, an, frankly, unimpressive price, adds to his case that this is more of a stock market thing that's just desperate to find some value and there was definite value in the uranium market with great fundamentals, all of a sudden it looks attractive. Sort of like the oil market, you know, the oil stocks in the last few months too. And this, I think, like oil, I think, started going up around the same time. It's probably late November, early December. So interesting correlations there. Finally, Uh, Kate's continues, public support for carbon-free baseload nuclear energy continues to grow as part of the clean energy transition movement, with the uranium market showing continued signs of incremental improvement in supply and demand fundamentals. This strategic financing is being undertaken at an ideal time for Denizen, supporting the opportunistic acquisition of physical uranium to hold as a long-term strategic capital asset. I hope they have a good place to store it. I guess that's part of what the $75 million is. Are they going to store, where are they going to store this? That's my obnoxious question. Where are you storing your, your <laughs> is this going to be stored somewhere else? Or are you storing this in Saskatchewan? That would be my sort of semi-obnoxious question for David Cates. Uh, where are you putting this stuff? Or is this just a piece of paper? Um, anyway, read the whole thing on northernmire.com. There's actually quite a bit more in here. And it's very interesting. So again, if you're in the uranium space and you're investing there, you definitely want to read that story. Very interesting stuff going on. Continuing on, mining profits reached $230 billion a year, and these were only topped by oil and gas and pharma. So this is a theme we've been coming back to, which is the sheer generation of cash that's going on in mining, even at you know $1,700 gold. Uh, that's just fine, thank you for most of these mining companies. So we have a report from mining.com. They take a look at the numbers. So again, great stuff for executives here. Mining companies adopted a more conservative approach after the 2015-16 market downturn to adjust to a more volatile commodity prices, focusing on cost cutting, productivity, and expanding liquidity. This is a new report by Moody's Investor Services, a ratings agency. Moody's says earnings for the 130 rated issuers in the industry has improved since mid-decade downturn with EBITDA for 12 months through September 2020, totaling $230 billion, the third largest among the global sectors after oil and gas and pharma. So they have the third highest EBITDA after oil and gas and pharma. Debts for the industry totaled $670 billion. But the debt-to-earnings ratio has been cut substantially since 2015, going from 3.8 at the end of the down cycle to 2.7 for the 12 months to end September 2020. Okay. So, again, we have some charts in there. Take a look, northernminer.com. And thank you to our friends at mining.com for providing that. That's by mining.com staff. Continuing on, we are still seeing some little investments and acquisitions. Nexa invests in Tinka Resources. Now, the reason I touched on this is not just because it's an acquisition-type thing, type story, and it's by Northern Miner staff, but because it's talking about zinc. Nexa Resources, one of the largest zinc producers in the world, has acquired a 9% stake in Tinka Resources, which is developing Ayahuilca, one of the largest zinc projects in Peru. Nexa owns Peru's only operating zinc smelter, as well as three underground base metal mines in the country. And according to Wood Mackenzie, was among the top five producers of mined zinc last year. So Nexa, one of the largest zinc producers in the world, has acquired a 9% stake in Tinka Resources, which has one of the largest zinc projects in Peru. Continuing on, talent trends shaping the mining industry in 2021. Another must read for mining executives out there, and this is by Mary McKenzie, special to the Northern Miner. And Mary McKenzie is principal in the Global Mining and Metals Practice at Ogers Bernston in Toronto. You know, normally you'd probably have to pay Mary a whole lot of money to get this kind of information, this kind of consultation. Uh, but here you can get it for just the price of an sub- annual subscription at the Northern Miner. The mining industry is going through a seismic shift as factors such as reputational challenges, resistance to embracing new technology, an increased focus on sustainability, and a lack of diversity are forcing mining organizations to adapt and evolve. The COVID-19 pandemic has amplified these challenges and primed the industry for change and growth. And a new report by global executive search firm Augers Bernston has found that a key factor in this growth and evolution will be the mining industry's ability to attract, retain, and develop Top talent, a common theme that we hear kind of over and over. Uh, The report explores the themes and insights shared by more than 60 industry executives from companies such as Ignico Eagle, Anglo-American, Platinum, Bulletin, De Beers, IM Gold, Kinross Gold, and Newmont. And here are just a few numbers. Almost half the industry's present workforce is over the age of 45, so I guess that's older, and an estimated 60,000 people will be retiring in the next decade in Canada alone. 60,000 people in Canada in the mining industry are going to be retiring next decade. You know, that's, yeah, that's probably like a quarter of the industry. (laughs) I'm just guessing there, but pretty interesting. And this is according to the Mining Industry Human Resources Council. And this situation is simply a microcosm of a broader global issue. The bottom line is talent planning and recruiting next generation leaders needs to be top of mind for industry executives around the globe. I mean, while these kids are like, give me the, you know, A market of protocols in crypto, and it's like the exact opposite of mining. Speaking at PDAC 2021, Mark Bristow had identified the fundamental question miners need to be asking themselves, and we mentioned this in a previous episode, how can mining become acceptable to future generations? It's an unloved industry, said Bristow. Quote, we've got to change that. So you can do a deep dive on the numbers here. We are just touching on it here because we have a pretty long interview coming up for our deep dive. Into uranium. Continuing on, top five EV makers responsible for 50% of cobalt deployed in 2020. So, EV is eating up the cobalt supply. In other words, Mining.com staff in 2020, a total of 18,750 tons of cobalt were consumed in the batteries of newly sold passenger EV vehicles globally. And that's electric vehicles, if you're wondering, an increase of 29% year over year. A new report by Atomus Intelligence reveals, according to the market analyst, the increase in cobalt use was the result of a surge in passenger BEV and PHEV sales in the second half of the year, particularly in China and Europe. Uh, note to mining.com staff reporter who wrote this, please put the full, uh, we don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you out there know what a BEV or a PHEV is, but is that a passenger? All good. Uh, When it comes to manufacturers, Atomos found that the top five EV makers by cobalt deployed onto roads in 2020 accounted for 49% of the global total. Okay, yeah, so half of the cobalt deployed onto roads was from the top five EVs. Volkswagen Group led the pack with nearly 3,000 tons of the blue metal, deployed in the batteries of new VW, Audi, Porsche, and seat electric vehicles, as well as those manufactured with joint venture partners in China. Quote, in total, VW brand EVs were responsible for 42% of the group's cobalt deployment in 2020, followed by Audi with 35%, Porsche with 15%, and all others combined with 8%. The German carmaker was followed by Tesla with more than 2,000 tons of cobalt deployed. Uh, in t- quote, in total, the Tesla Model 3 was responsible for 63% of Tesla's cobalt deployment in 2020, followed by the Model Y with 16%, and Model X with 13%, and Model S with 9%. Okay, and Hyundai is in there next, and then Daimler, and yeah, their Mercedes-Benz and smart electric vehicles. So, cobalt is being eaten up by EVs. Very interesting. It might explain why we've been seeing such dramatic moves in the cobalt price in the last few weeks. So, with that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on there. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on March 23rd, gold is trading at $1,727.03 per ounce. That is $6 lower than last week. And silver is trading at $25.14. That is $0.82 lower. Then last week's quote, platinum is trading at $1,172.83. That is $50 lower than last week's quote. However, palladium is trading at $2,614.72. That is $99 higher than last week's quote and turning to our industrial metals. Copper is trading at $4.13 per pound. That is 2 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.02. That is 5 cents higher than last week. Lead is trading at 89 cents per pound. That is a penny higher. Nickel is trading at $7.45 per pound. That is 12 cents higher than last week. Tin has taken a break and it is at $12.36 per pound. That is... $1.76 A seventy-six lower than last week's quote, and cobalt is at $23.92 per pound. That is a penny lower than last week, and zinc is at $1.30 per pound. That is three cents higher. What do we see? I mean, gold and silver remain in chill mode. Platinum as well. Palladium, however, shoots pretty high. I mean, it's nearing its all-time highs of the last two years. Copper stays elevated, and basically your industrial metals stay quite elevated, except for tin and cobalt, which have both been on a tear. So they're taking a well-deserved break, while metals like zinc are $1.30. Nickel is just sort of hanging in there higher. Copper hanging in there higher $4.13. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have research analyst Rowan Ratty. And he joined Global X in 2015. And he works with the firm's research team, providing insights into the financial markets and Global X's unique range of ETFs, including energy infrastructure, preferreds, covered calls, and dividend strategies. I'm not surprised. I'm just so excited about this uh, discussion. Uh, I'm going to hand it right over, but we're just going to give the rest of Rowan's bio here. Rowan is also a member of the firm's portfolio construction committee, providing model portfolio solutions. To investors. Rohan earned his BA in economics from New York University. Without further ado, my interview with Rohan Ratty. So joining me today on the podcast is Rohan Reddy, research analyst at Global X ETFs, Rowan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Adrian. It's great to have you. Uh, Uranium has been on fire at least the last eight weeks or so. It's always a really interesting trade. But I thought before we get into the uranium ETF that you guys run, I thought I'd just ask you about your general take on things. Is GlobalX, are they generally commodity focused? Yeah. So for some background on GlobalX, we are
1: a uh, pretty diversified asset manager uh, within the ETF space. We cover a number of markets, mostly on the equity side, but we also have a number of funds within the commodity space. Internationals and uh, thematics and income are some of the ones that we specialize in. We have approximately 80 ETFs right now. Um, So we cover a number of different markets, and we have about $28 billion in assets under management. And specifically within the commodity side, uh, we have four funds that we offer, a uranium miners fund, a copper miners fund, a silver miners fund, and a gold miners
0: fund. Okay, interesting. And are you primarily focused on the sort of commodity angle, or are you sort of more general? I cover uh, specifically our income and commodity suites. Okay, excellent. So I'm actually very excited to have you on then because I'm sure you've heard this debate and it's actually more of a proclamation that we are in a new commodity super cycle, the famous call from Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs. Some people though, yeah, like I I kind of agree, but at the same time, I, I do agree with the Fed on this idea that it's transitory and that maybe there's a little bit of, over-eagerness and over-excitement that this thing's just going to go straight to the moon and that we're going to get huge inflation. Do you have a take on this? I do think
1: this is probably the best setup we've seen since the commodity super cycle. Whether it reaches that point, um, that may be unlikely. But I think the setup, especially over the last 10 years, um, it's looking the best it's it's been in that time frame. I think One of the big factors that's changed a lot has been the macro shift uh, and then also the market fundamentals. So those are the two things we really like right now. If you look at the macro setup, inflation is starting to increase. We just saw numbers in the U.S. come out, uh, coming at 1.7 percent, which was the highest number since the pre-pandemic period. And we're also seeing a lot of stimulus come in from the Fed, a third round of stimulus within the U.S. on the fiscal side. Uh, from the government themselves. And interest rates generally are very low across the world. So the setup right now for commodities is looking like demand could start to increase. And when you combine that with the fact that we are still seeing mining activity down compared to where it was prior to the pandemic, the market fundamentals are starting to shape up. So in a number of different markets for commodities right now, there are deficits. So uh, specifically uh, within the copper and uranium areas, those are two areas that are seeing a big shift upwards within the equity side for equity exposed
0: commodities in those areas, and also uh, for the commodity prices themselves. Do you guys uh, look at supply chains, and does that sort of factor into, like, say, you're you're a research analyst? Does that factor into your sort of framework of Do you look at supply lines in, on some level, or or not? So the supply chain is
1: always somewhat important because you know looking at the inputs it it does drive the market to some extent especially if there are some changes over the long term it's not the primary factor that we look at when deciding whether an investment opportunity is one of the better ones at this moment but certainly supply chains over the long term have a meaningful effect i think you know we'll get into this with the uranium market but Specifically, there are certain countries where uh, uranium, for example, is is coming out from more so. So Kazakhstan, Canada, the dynamics in those countries actually matter more so, you know, than maybe other parts of the world. So there are specific parts of the supply chain where uh, we do look at in order to formulate
0: our investment thesis. So with that being said, then, what are you seeing? Are you seeing... A- tightness in supply? I mean, we've seen, again, uranium stocks, I don't know, the last two months, I'd have to get out a chart to see exactly how long, but we've seen them go on a big run. Are you seeing constrictions in supply in uranium? Yes. Yeah, so uh, one of the biggest shifts within the market that occurred over
1: the last few years actually was the IPO of Kazatomprom out of Kazakhstan, the state-owned entity um, that produces uranium. And they floated a small portion of their equity on the London Stock Exchange, and that opened up market depth considerably. Now, one of the shifts that also occurred was they actually curtailed production by 20%, and they've continued those production cuts over that time frame, And they've actually announced it's going to go through into the next year or two as well. So we are seeing major players like Kazatomprom uh, cut back on production. And then there's also been almost the involuntary production cuts, uh, mostly as a result of the pandemic. But as you were mentioning, you know, uh, uranium prices were a little bit lower over the last five, six plus years. And so uh, just off the economics, some uh, junior miners might have cut back on production. So the market was for, for reasons both you know, on a on the long term basis, but
0: also in
1: the short term has been seeing production
0: um, pulled back. Interesting. And of course, there's I'm sure you saw the story about Cameco during the pandemic. They said we're going to shut down and they, they were actually continuing their strategy that gun pre pandemic of buying off the market. I assume you're familiar with that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: so I, I think the off-market transactions are, they're interesting in the sense that if you look at what's been going on market, it's it's obviously been a little bit challenging over the last few years. So the off-market strategy, especially you know around what we've been seeing with the macro environment the last few years, it does kind of make sense. Um, I'm not sure if it will extend over the long term, though, because the on-market one is a little bit more developed. But we have been seeing that, you know, mostly on the, the nuclear side. I think that's the, you know, on the nuclear military side, the most uh, prevalent example of that. But it is an interesting example of maybe the ways companies can pivot uh, during a period when the market may be a little bit softer.
0: Right, because, I mean, Kazakhstan, I would say like 10 years ago of flooding the market. So what you were just describing earlier, that sounds like a a shift in strategy. Yes, I think most notably, we've seen
1: this in the oil markets, right, where ever since uh, oil went from, you know, $100 a barrel in 2014 to, you know, 26 back in February of 2016, it became more and more clear that from OPEC's standpoint, they needed to cooperate with each other in order to take production off the market. And now you've actually seen some remnants of that extend into the uranium market as well. I mean, if you look at uranium, it is a pretty top-heavy market in terms of who is producing. So a lot of these one-off individual producers and countries actually have pretty big power in determining the pricing dynamics. So for a company like Casa Tomprom that voluntarily took off 20% of their production, that really had a meaningful effect on the market. And I think you could see that type of strategy extend into the long-term, especially when you think about many of these countries are relying on one-off commodities like uranium for a big part of their fiscal revenues. So, you know, you want to monetize those revenues during a period when prices are higher. It becomes a little bit more challenging when there's an extended period of lower prices. So I would actually expect this type of a strategy to be explored from those types of companies um, moving on into the future as well.
0: Now, as far as you actually getting information on this market, I remember listening to a conference call with Tim Gitzel, the uh, CEO of Cameco, and he was commenting on the opaqueness of the market in terms of even just getting like a clear price. Where do you get your price and could you comment just on this opaqueness? Do you agree with that or do you kind of get all the information you need and it's just a click away?
1: I would fully agree with that. It, it is an opaque market. In fact, a lot of times when we put out research on the uranium market, we notice there's a significant amount of investor interest in it because it's very hard to find it elsewhere. Even on the sell side, there's not a ton of analysts covering the space. And you know it starts off with the pricing, as you mentioned, because... Pricing is it, it's not like a typical commodity where you can just get futures pricing. It's similar to lithium in that sense, where you, there's not really a clear price that's you know market at a certain number. You kind of have to look at you know what goes on over you know prior months and then see who's publishing prices. Uh, UXC does a pretty good job of that. Uh, Cameco actually publishes that on their website as well, but it is hard to to get information on this market. What we do is, um, because we run an ETF within the space and we are investors in some of these companies, we do try and keep in touch with these companies because ultimately the companies are the ones with the most on the ground information. So, you know, we'll be in touch with some of the larger uranium companies in our portfolio and they'll give us uh, information on where they see the market going, but also some of the dynamics within the market that may not actually be visible to certain
0: readers. Great. Okay, so and that's exactly where I want to go. So before we get into the actual companies that make up the ETF and sort of how it's kind of balanced, where do you see this market going? I mean, it's been pretty, uh, a pretty impressive move over the last, you know, two to three months. Uh, where do you see things going based on your information? The shape up is looking very
1: good right now for uranium. If you think about, you know, both the, the fundamentals in place and then also the long-term secular move. Right now, you know, uranium's also coming off a point where the valuations look very attractive because it was trading at low price points. So the big thing long-term for us is this move towards you know, uh, power generation and electricity generation coming from uranium and reactor building that's using uranium. We're seeing that more and more come out of countries like China and India, big uh, population centers that use a lot of energy and are exploring these net zero emission strategies. So China has said uh, they're targeting by two thousand sixty to have net zero emissions, and other countries, most notably, uh, you know, across. Uh, Western Europe and even in Asia, uh, where there have been very aggressive goals and trying to get away from the fossil fuel side of things. So uh, that's a strong tailwind for the uranium industry over the long term. But what we are also seeing in the short term is um, right now, this is a market that uh, feels like it could be in an extended deficit for you know the next couple of years now, especially because you've seen companies like Kazatomprom take production off the market, but also, you know, mining activity is not where it was prior to the pandemic. So we're seeing a combination of both the demand side ramp up, but also uh, constructive supply dynamics.
0: And from your information, who is building nuclear reactors? Are, Are they being built? Is it primarily China and India, as you say? I mean, I'm in Germany and, you know, With Fukushima, it sounded like they had stopped and even wanted to get rid of all their nuclear energy. What's the latest information you have just on the build out of these reactors? Yeah. And this is, I would say, probably the most important
1: part of the uranium market is these nuclear reactors. So as you mentioned, after Fukushima, it became a little bit of a public perception problem for building more and more reactors because of the uh, public safety issues and whether there were uh, you know infrastructure in place in order to be able to handle uh, reactors but as many countries have you know grappled with the clean energy movement and they've, they've been looking to move away from um, the oil and true fossil fuels markets What we've been seeing is that nuclear is becoming a bigger part of that equation. So the Asian countries um, like China, India, South Korea, these are countries that have really embraced uh, the nuclear movement, and they are the ones that are building more and more reactors. But we're also seeing this come out of uh, Western European countries, too. I think Germany is a bit of an exception because you know, they, they went the complete opposite direction after Fukushima. But we are seeing a number of countries, uh, both on the Asian continent, as well as within, you know, Europe, and even to an extent in the United States, um, actually building more and more reactors. So the increase in nuclear reactors is probably the biggest uh, driver of uranium growth uh, in the future. But I think the other thing that's should be mentioned within Uranium is after Fukushima, you know, with that public perception issue, many of these Uranium companies had to kind of pivot and look as to how they were going to market themselves and their corporate strategy. And many of them tried to go down this ESG uh, route, which has proved to be a strong uh, talking point, because ESG is becoming uh, a big part of you know both the investor dynamics for where investors are putting dollars, but also for the average individual who you know does not want to take part in a lot of the the fossil fuel emissions that um, have been taking place over the last several decades. So I think uranium was actually in a lot of the uranium industry was actually out front. Um, after that low period uh, post-Fukushima
0: time. Yeah, to your point, uh, yeah, it's not uncommon for, I've only listened to two or three conference calls by Tim Gitzel at Cameco, but I remember one, I mean, the first five minutes was about how Cameco is an uh, environmental company. That's how to basically, you know, to your point, an ESG-friendly company and it is a strong point because it completely changes the branding. Now, as far as these reactors as well in Western Canada, or just across, there's a few provinces in Canada that are adopting these SMRs, I think small modular reactors, I believe they're called. How big of a factor do you think that is? What do you think of that? Yeah, it's it's a bit in depth into some of the the market dynamics with the
1: the SMRs, but I think it it does raise the possibility that if you're not looking to build one of those big reactors in place, which I think you know ever since the Fukushima period has been a bit of an issue, um, some of the the SMR tactics that have been in place, it does uh, allow some of these companies to be able to leg into the nuclear movement, which I think is a one way to be able to pivot into nuclear because you're you're not necessarily betting the farm on it um but you're also just testing out to see what type of a power source it is so i think actually this could be a growing part of the market it's not going to be you know the biggest source of demand for uh, some of these uranium companies but it could be something where over the next few decades, if we see more and more of these SMRs, it'll start to add up and actually add meaningful demand into the market.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had uh, John Gorman from the Canadian Nuclear Association on, maybe, I don't know, two or three months ago, And he was describing it like you could put one of these SMRs on the back of a truck or, you know, like almost like a trailer and power your your mind with it. Uh, So, you know, if that is true, and I assume it is, I mean, yeah, you could see that maybe catching on because to your point, it's not like it's some ginormous cost and commitment of of building a, a nuclear reactor. Right. And and all the uh, NIMBYism, you know, not not in my backyard type stuff and and all of that. So so it could get interesting over there. So I want to ask you then about this ETF that you guys have. How do you balance it out? Is Cameco the biggest? I would assume they're the biggest holding in there, but uh, tell me about the actual ETF and how is it composed? It's a uh, pretty good
1: representation of the overall uh, uranium industry. It uh, goes across the supply chain, so it's within the miners of uranium and then also some of the uh, nuclear-focused power companies. So as you would expect, the largest companies within there are Cameco and Kazatomprom, uh, most notably because those are you know some of the larger cap entities within the space, but we've also seen a number of you know smaller junior miners that have come into the portfolio. They have you know singular properties, or uh, they might have certain geographies that they cover, rather than you know more diversified landscape that some of the larger companies like Cameco might cover. And then we also have some of the um, nuclear power companies that are more utility like within the portfolio. So it's actually a fairly diversified way to enter the market it covers you know a number of different holdings there's a lot of times 30 to 40 holdings say Uh, And you're also getting exposure to a pretty diversified basket of uh, companies within the public equity space across international markets. So a challenge for investors sometimes is accessing those foreign companies, whereas if you use an ETF, you're actually able to get access to that basket of companies in a pretty liquid manner. So for traders who are looking to benefit from uh, some of the uranium uh, market dynamics right now that are happening, we've actually been seeing a meaningful
0: amount of inflows into our fund. That's almost my next question. Have you noticed, is it getting popular? Because I would assume it is based on the market has been kind of expensive, generally speaking. So it's like these. there's fewer and fewer pockets of value, you might say, that are available, particularly with the attractive sort of fundamentals of uranium. So have you uh, notice like a pickup in uh, popularity for the ETF? Yes. Um, so
1: our fund right now is well north of $400 million in assets. And uh, prior to the big market buildup, our fund was about $150 million in assets. So we've seen a meaningful amount of inflows come into the fund. So it's not just been a uh, market movement that's been powering it. And I do think part of it is we have the longest track record of a uranium fund out there. We launched this fund over a decade ago, so it's got you know well north of 10 years of, of track record on it. and it's also amongst the most liquid uh, funds out there to access the space. So uh, for investors who are you know looking to at least uh, come into the fund for a short to medium term time frame, a lot of times traders might look at that. Um, It's one of the easier ways to access the space. And then it kind of goes back to the point we were mentioning before about the opaqueness of the uranium market and not being able to access a clear futures market. So unless you're doing something off market, there's not really a ton of easy ways to access uh, the uranium industry. So RETF ticker URA is actually one of the easier
0: ways to do so. And do you get questions from, say, a pension fund? If there are you know questions about your ETF, and do you ever get questions on ESG yourselves, and do you have to answer that? Yes. Yeah, so one of the big reasons why
1: uh, URA has be- been becoming very popular for us is because uh, it is a bit of a clean energy play. Um, so as we were talking about, a number of these companies are trying to market themselves as ESG entities. A lot of pension funds and other institutional investors with uh, clean energy mandates or ESG style mandates have been exploring uranium as more of an option than they were before. Usually, uranium is not the first choice in your mind when you think of how to invest in the ESG movement. But when you look at this shift away from fossil fuels and the fact that uranium emits 70 times less in fossil uh, fuel emissions compared to, say, coal, it all of a sudden becomes a pretty good value proposition. And then when you combine the market dynamics of uh, the uranium prices going up, and the uh, equity is doing very well. More and more institutional investors have been asking us questions about the space, and uh, it's actually been leading to more and more investor dollars that have been coming into the fund. Hence, why it's now a, a
0: four hundred million dollar fund. And just a couple more questions, and and one is to do with say like if you get like a mass liquidity event, uh, say like. Last March, uh, with COVID and the huge panic in the markets, how did the ETF perform then? Were you happy with how it tracked the market? Was it off by a certain amount? How did that go? So ETFs are pass-through
1: vehicles, right? So they're simply used to track what uh, the underlying uh, exposure is that they have the real question is about the structure themselves so you know we were invested in the uranium equities and the fund performed very similar to how uranium equities did where you know during the uh, the march period of the pandemic when markets were going down most equities as a whole went down too so it's not that the ETF was an exception in any way i think one thing that is a little bit of a nuance within the uranium space is many of these companies especially the junior miners are small and mid cap entities so you know smaller cap companies especially international small caps tend to experience a bit of a uh, lower liquidity levels um, compared to you know maybe uh, periods where the markets are doing well. However, because our ETF is fairly liquid and um, it has a, a lot of assets in it and very good trading volume, and that it's diversified across the uranium value chain, URA was actually one of the most liquid ways to get into and out of the uranium space. So it performed as you would expect based on uh, what we saw out of the uranium industry and the price movements there. But the ETF was arguably one of the better ways to access
0: the space during that period. So in a sense, like accuracy is what you want. Like, you know, if everything went down and then your ETF stayed up, that's that's almost a bad performance on some metrics, right? So you're saying it tracked it fairly well. Yes, exactly. Um,
1: you always want to have the ETF track your underlying exposure. So there shouldn't be any big discrepancies one way or the other. And you know, for a diversified equity basket, like even though the uranium industry is just one industry itself, because it has a number of different holdings within the fund, um, it actually tracked, you know, very well and was one of the better ways for investors to get into and out of
0: that market. Okay, excellent. And final question, Rowan, Uh, do you have any final thoughts just on the on uranium or, or anything, the markets at large? Uh, any thoughts? I think the big thing we are seeing uh, these days is a shift away from
1: growth and towards value. And I think that really does benefit uranium companies because, you know, if you look at the valuations right now on uranium uh, and the equities exposed to uranium, they're trading at extremely attractive levels. And right now, When we've been in a period where the market has generally gone up for the last decade plus and investors are kind of looking at which part of their portfolios are a little bit more expensive and then when you also take into account that we do have this esg and clean energy movement underway uranium is actually shaping up to be one of the better investments within the commodity space so as we were talking about at the top of uh the show You know, copper is one area where you're seeing some good dynamics, but uranium is actually seeing a lot of secular tailwinds uh, for these companies, and we think that in the long term, you know, even though uh, we were about 10 years off from the, the Fukushima period. We do think, you know, looking out the next decade, two decades plus, uranium is very well positioned to take part in the clean energy movement and uh, a lot of the goals from countries around the world of adopting uh, clean energy and then also reducing fossil fuel emissions and having climate change goals. So uh, it's a good story, um, but also looking at the fundamentals, it looks like an area that um, can really benefit
0: uh, in the long term. Mm And final small question, do you have any price targets on uranium? So we do not, we're not equity analysts, so
1: we don't actually cover individual equities. We simply cover the industries as a whole. Uh, And to clarify on uh, the URA ETF, we are not actively managing the portfolio. So this is passively uh, managed according to a rules-based index. So we are in contact with a number of these companies, but we don't actually have price targets. We leave that to the sell-side analysts.
0: Okay, excellent. Rowan Reddy, Research Analyst at Global X ETFs, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Well, I must be just a little bit of a finance geek because I enjoyed that interview a little too much. A little too much. Uh, it was great to have Rowan on the program. We are definitely going to have to have him back. There's nothing like having an expert on a topic like this, especially in the middle of a bull market. So thank you once again for joining the program. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcasts directory. Leave likes, comments, shares, send it to your friend. Until next week, take care.